0: Thank you, Cheryl. This looks like you survived the partial rapture that uh, came about as a result of the hurricane. <laughs> I didn't think the hurricane would this have this kind of an impact on us, being as we live in a desert. But uh, anyways, so we're going to have a little fun today. We, uh, uh, we're looking at Mark chapter 7 this morning. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn together with me. And in honor of Chuck, I have three titles, and they are all alliterated, so you can take your pick. Uh, The titles for this morning's message range from Tradition or Truth, The Law of God or Legalism, Scripture or Something Else. Any of those three will work. I'm going to go with Tradition or Truth. The point of today's message really boils down to what is it that you're going to follow as your standard of righteousness and as the articulation of what God expects of you. From a contextual perspective, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is dealing in the text specifically with the scribes and Pharisees. Just to fill out a little of the background, we'll get into some more of the specific details as they relate to the text when we get into this. Uh, But in the context of the nation of Israel, you know that when God redeemed them from bondage in Egypt, He gave them the law of Moses, the law of God. He gave them the specific stipulations regarding what He expected of them as a people. The Mosaic Law is the way it's a lot of times referred to. That Mosaic Law expressed not only the Ten Commandments, but it codified a number of other regulations. In other words, it got into details with regard to, well, the sacrificial system. And not only the sin offerings, but also free will offerings and other uh, circumstances. It even had some very specific instructions that. Uh, even today, modern interpreters tend to consider a bit bizarre, like uh, the instruction, do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. Uh, It seems like that cooking recipe is a bit obscure, and why would God forbid the nation of Israel from doing that? Likewise, the prescription to not eat Uh, Pork and those kinds of things, those dietary regulations. And in fact, when you look in the New Testament and you see that, for example, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is hesitant to take the gospel to Gentiles because they're Gentiles. They haven't been circumcised. They don't recognize the law of God, etc. And so God gives a vision to Peter of a sheet coming down. And all those animals that were previously right off the menu, including pork and whatnot, Uh, So he gives him a vision saying all of that is okay. Peter says, but wait, 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 I have always, and even later in Peter's life um, and ministry, after he's had that vision, after he's had it confirmed that the Mosaic law and those dietary regulations and restrictions have been lifted along with the sacrificial system because of the once-for-all sacrifice for sins that Christ made. It's now okay to eat pork if you're a Jew. Uh, etc. Well, in Galatians chapter 2, 3, no, th- uh, in Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that he had to confront Peter because he was sitting there and eating with Gentiles, just like he always did, until some of the circumcision showed up, and then he went back to his old practices and wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore, and, and Paul rebuked him. So this is if, listen, if you're a Jew, the Mosaic law, the dietary regulations and all of those uh, different prescriptions, those were a specific set of instructions God gave in the Old Testament It says, as my people, as a national witness internationally, this is the way I expect you to behave. This is the way I expect you to dress and I expect you to and, uh, avoid the kinds of practices that your pagan neighbors do, and that's where most likely, uh, this is the way I would handle it anyways, that prescription with regard to don't uh, boil a goat in its mother's milk, and there's a lot of debate about this because it's hard to figure out exactly what that's tied to, but I think the best way to understand it is when, uh, when the Jews went in and took the promised land, they drove out the Canaanites, etc., they had a number of cultic, Worship practices, a lot of them tied to fertility rites in their various belief systems. And uh, there are Canaanite religious beliefs and practices associated with things like boiling a goat in its mother's milk so that you bring fertility to yourself and your household and your property, all that kind of. Uh, The superstitious mumbo jumbo. That's the technical term for the day. I I introduced the word doofus last week. Mumbo jumbo is today's cool word, all right? So you can have some fun at lunchtime again today. Mumbo jumbo. M U M B O. Jumbo. Large mumbo, okay? That's what we're talking about. Anyways, um, so. Uh, when we're talking about the, that Old Testament sacrificial system and all the various dietary laws and prescriptions, the many and sundry laws and the many and various types of laws, okay, the people of Israel didn't obey them all. In fact, the Sabbath, especially the Sabbath year, was neglected from the beginning. And result, they wind up in captivity. When they return from captivity they immediately are following practices that are violations of the law of God. Marrying foreign wives, etc. And Ezra addresses all of that very severely. And they are forced to respond accordingly. Now, when, when after that generation, after Ezra's generation, in his ret- focus of returning to the law of God and to him, adhering to it and following it, from that point on, over the next four hundred years until the time of Christ, you have basically rabbinic traditions that are accumulated now what do you what do I mean when I say that? What I mean is that the rabbis, the scribes, the lawyers, the interpreters of the law of God decided that what we need to do is come up with a set of uh, specific statements that codify what it means to keep the Sabbath, what it means to follow this specific command in Scripture. And so they came up with, you know, what what does it mean to work on the Sabbath? I mean, can I tie my shoe? Can I get dressed? Can I clean up the dishes after dinner? Can I make dinner? Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do the other thing? How far can I actually travel and it's now uh, and, and it's now work instead of uh, keeping the Sabbath, etc.? So the scribes, like any good lawyers, decided to start to codify this and accumulate this. All right. Now, this actually isn't picking on Mark. That happens later. So just, just don't, don't. It's not always all about you, Mark. All right. But the, the, the lawyers, the interpreters of the law, began to write laws upon laws upon laws. And they are referred to as the traditions of the elders. And that's the way you'll see it in your English Bible, the traditions of the elders. And these, over time, codified and further stipulated exactly what does it mean to do this. Now, one of the things that originally starts with this is you're just trying to help people keep the law to understand whether they're violating the Sabbath or not and the other regulations. And then it quickly turns into putting a hedge around the law. So it's no longer trying to give interpretations and specific applications of the law, what is or isn't violating the Sabbath. It moves to the point where uh, we're going to not just talk about the specific applications, we're going to even go beyond that so that we make sure we don't get anywhere near breaking the law. We're going to say, for example, it would be like today. Ephesians tells us, that it is sin to get drunk. Is that that correct? Be not drunk with wine. Does it say you can't drink wine? Uh, Paul even later says, uh, take a little wine for your stomach. So he he prescribes it medicinally to Timothy in the context of of having some stomach problems. Well, what you would do then is you would take some prescription like that and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to say the law actually is if you really want to obey God, you never drink any wine at all, ever. In fact, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls who do. See how it begins to expand? Pretty soon, the codified traditions that are being passed down are legalism. It's a legalistic set of behavioral patterns. And there's two dangers to that. Number one, it it actually leads to a false sense of security and a false sense of assurance of your own righteousness. I am better than other people. I'm more righteous than other people because I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do when in fact that standard is way beyond what God says. So I have a false sense of my own righteousness My own right standing before God, which also can easily lead to arrogance and pride and looking down on others and judging and condemning them because they're not adhering to my legalistic standard, my traditions. And remember, notice I'm removed from the truth now. I'm not following the truth. I'm following traditions. I'm not following the law of God. I'm following a set of stipulations that are an interpretation uh, and an extended application of what I've come up with, or others have come up with for me. And that's my behavioral pattern and standard by which I'm judging what's right and wrong, what's righteous and not righteous. Follow me? Now, this is one of the reasons when, why when Jesus shows up, and you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and the common reaction to Jesus' preaching is, Wow! This guy preaches different. He doesn't preach like, like one of the scribes, one of the Pharisees, one of the rabbis. He preaches as one having authority within himself. You want to know why? Because he's not referring to traditions. He's not referring to rabbi so-and-so. He's, not referring, he's just going straight from Scripture. Now, and that's the other thing that happens when you start following traditions or a legalistic set of stipulations that you or others have come up with for you, okay? What happens is the law of God is no longer your ultimate authority. Anytime you have Scripture plus something else as your set of instructions that you're following, this is no longer the ultimate authority, that added set of traditions or instructions is. If you want to see a very modern equivalent of this, look at Catholicism. They have the Word of God and papal authority and the traditions of the church. It's it's just a modern form of Pharisaic legalism. And that's why they have a new sacrificial system. That's why they have a new priesthood. That's why they have new sacrifices of the mass, etc. Okay, that's, that's all that's going on there. You've got, you've got the law of God. You add something to it, and the law of God is no longer your ultimate authority. Now we go to Mark 7. We walk right into Jesus' day and His time frame. And you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the most righteous people on the planet, the most devoted people to the law of God on the planet that everybody can see. That's why it's so stunning in Matthew 5, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, flat out, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what he just said? The people you think that are the most righteous are not going to heaven. Because that's all external and it's all adhering to a set of traditions and standards that are not the biblical standard. See, that is a major affront to the formal religious system. Now, if you want an encapsulation of this, in Romans chapter 10, in verse 2, the Apostle Paul talks about the Jews. He says, My heart's desire, in verse 1, and my prayer to God for them, that is for the Jews, the Jewish people, is their salvation. For I testify to them that they have a zeal for God. They are zealous to worship and to follow and obey God. But it's not according to knowledge. In Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul describes his own confidence in the flesh when he was a Pharisee this way. He says, I myself might have confidence in, even in the flesh. Okay? I might give you a list of the things that reveal to you what I was like as a Pharisee and what I believed made me right with God. For, uh, uh, for although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day. Why? Because the Old Testament called for circumcision of the nation of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. See, I kept all those external requirements and all of those practices and all of those traditions, and I did it better than almost anybody else, and in many cases better than everybody else, even of the Pharisees in my day. Now, when you walk into Mark chapter 7, what you're going to see is that's exactly what Jesus confronts. What is your authority? Is it truth or tradition? Is it the law of God or is it legalism, your own set of standards? Is it scripture or something else? Because if it's scripture and something else, if it's the law of God and your legalistic standards if it 's the truth and your traditions, then what the real authority is is not the truth it 's not the scripture it 's not the Bible anymore it 's now your traditions and that 's what Jesus is going to confront here what you 're going to see is that the tradition that traditions focus on externals truth evaluates the heart, and that 's what God looks on. God looks on the heart the Pharisees indeed have a real devotion to adhering to what God expects of them in the Scriptures, but it is what God expects of them in the Scriptures as detailed by their rabbinic traditions, and so their real authority is is removed from the Scriptures and becomes those traditions. So as we get ready to look at this, what I want to challenge you with is, what is your standard? Is your standard the Scriptures, or is it something else? Is it actually what the law of God says? Or is is it your interpretation and your set of uh, interpretive applications that becomes the standard by which you judge not only yourself, but then look at others and evaluate them and whether they are right in the sight of God by your own standards of behavior? Let's take a look at both tradition and truth in order. We'll start by looking at traditions, verses 1 to 13. Worship built on religious traditions as Jesus addresses it with the religious leaders. And actually, it's the leaders themselves that raise the issue. Jesus just uh, refutes it. Notice the question from the Pharisees starting in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, that is Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem... And had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is, unwashed hands. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Jesus. So that's what tells you that if this is kind of a private conversation. Uh, when they had come from Jerusalem, which shows you this is an official, formal delegation. Now, I need to take a pause here. We're going to put a pin in this. And I need to correct something that I've said at least last week. And I think think the last two weeks. So I mentioned that we were in the last four to six weeks of Jesus's earthly life and ministry before we get to the Passover. So that's incorrect. We're actually about 10 months removed from uh, Passion Week at this point. And I mentioned that to my wife this week that had been bothering me. I'm going through in my head and going, Is the, do I, I think I have my chronology wrong. And she says, well, does it really matter? And I... <laughs> And I said, that, and I says to her, well, it doesn't change the interpretation, but it's factually an error. Uh, so, and I really, I really care that I get it right. And so, so I will just say, forgive me. I, I went back through my notes. I'm trying to figure out whether I misread somebody Uh, And just wrote it in my notes and went with it or whether I read somebody that has holds to like the one year chronology and I went with that I think that's what I did, but I couldn't go back and find it And so I just went through and I reworked out the whole chronology of the life of Christ again And just to set things into perspective the first And one of the problems is there is a passover that's actually not detailed in the four gospel accounts So it does become a complex issue Uh, But it still irks me that I swung and missed. But the the point is, for the first two years of Jesus's earthly ministry, he accumulates his disciples, he singles them out to be with him, and he is is focused on preaching to the populace, to the people, and doing miracles, etc., when you approach the last year of his earthly life and ministry, that's when he has given them plenty of revelation to respond rightly. He has given them plenty of instruction and open preaching to respond rightly to. And when they haven't, since God never caters to unbelief, he begins to preach in parables and then he begins to separate himself from the masses and the big event related to the feeding of the 5000 that well 5000 men plus all the women and children is that that's John 6 we have the bread of life discourse now that's not actually in Mark 6 Mark 6 says after verse 53 when they crossed over that is the sea of Galilee they came to land at Gennesaret and they moored to the shore uh, and when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole gun- country and began to carry uh, here and there on their palace, those who were sick to the place where they heard he was, etc. And so that's when the bread of life discourse takes place and they want to take him to Jerusalem and make him king by force. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me unless you're totally committed to me then we have nothing to do with each other and most of the crowd that was with him dispersed at that point. Now, he still is popular. You see in verse 56, whenever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplace, imploring him that he might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. etc. still doing miracles and still doing a, a popular ministry, but he moves away from Capernaum and where he largely had spent most of his time, and he is, he is now passed. The absolute height of his popularity is still popular, still doing miracles, but more and more he is focused just on training his disciples and preparing them for his ultimate exit, uh, exit, which is going to happen on his last Passover. So we are heading to that. We're just not as close as I made it seem last week. So forgive me for uh, for for being a doofus and dorking that one up. How's that, Gina? All right. So in in chapter seven, verse one, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him private conversation when they had come from Jerusalem, formal address. So he's gotten to the height of his popularity. People are already talking about wanting to make him king because they recognize him as Messiah because of the miracles. And so the Pharisees have sent a commission to formally interview him. And if you take a look at John's gospel, if you remember at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in John 2, Jesus does a very messianic thing. He does a thing that really indicates he is from God. You know what that was? It's not the miracle of changing water into wine as much as it is the cleansing of the temple. And when he walks into the temple and drives out the money changers and nobody lifts a finger... The high priest, the, the, the chief priest, they come out and they confront him and say, by what authority do you do this? You know what they've just admitted? <laughs> what we're doing is wrong <laughs> and, and you caught us. But what gives you the right to take that kind of action? Okay, show us a sign that proves that you have a right to do this. And he says, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up again. Now, they laugh because it took 46 years to build Herod's temple just to the state it was. Jesus was talking about his body, but it always tickles me that, uh, that the temple of his body, but it always tickles me that, that they're challenging Jesus to do a miracle that actually he could do. The, the, the God who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing in six literal days could have easily just leveled Herod's temple and spoke it back into existence. So I, that, that always tickles me, but I digress. Point is, he, he confronts the priesthood, the Sadducees on their home turf, and they can't do anything to stop him. The reason John 3 says Nicodemus comes that night and says, we know you're a man sent from God because nobody can do the things that you do unless God were with him. The primary focus is on him having addressed the corruption of the priesthood in the worship system. That's Nicodemus, the chief teacher, the, uh, one of the members of the 70 rulers, the elders of Israel. He is, he is the big shot, uh, big shot Pharisee. He said, oh, you are definitely from God. And we're here ready to recognize you. There's no, no question we recognize you are from God. Nobody could do what you did uh, unless God is with him. And, and you would think, and I expect, expect that what the Pharisees, Nicodemus in particular, was looking for is him to go, oh, well, good job. You guys are the orthodox ones, you are the Bible believers, you are the the ones that are committed to obeying the law of God. Good job Nicodemus. And what does he do instead? Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What? Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't get this? And from that point on, Jesus's ministry was outside of Jerusalem and in the main stomping grounds of the Pharisees and the scribes. And he got invited to Pharisees' houses. He got invited to scribes' houses. He would go in and have dinner with them, just like he would go in and have dinner with the tax collectors and sinners. And the scribes and Pharisees were greatly offended. They agreed that he did a good job in pointing out the corruption of the worship system by the priests. But then he walked into their own houses, and he walked into their own synagogues, and he's telling them, hey, you guys are sinners too, and you need to repent and then he's going and eating with tax collectors and sinners and just telling them to repent and they have a place in the kingdom of God wait a minute this doesn't add up and now we get just to the height of Jesus's popularity and the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together with Jesus when they had come from Jerusalem in an official delegation and they had seen some of his disciples who were eating their bread with impure hands that is unwashed hands well, why would that be an issue? Why would that be something they would ask him about? Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, any self-respecting Jew that really loves God and really cares about the law is going to go through a ceremonial washing exercise before they sit down to eat. Why? Because that's a Jewish tradition. That's a religious tradition. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. That expression, carefully wash, in the Greek, literally is fist wash. Now, it's a fun little uh, side note to get into. Well, what does it mean to fist wash? Fist wash. Okay, Uh, Does it mean, as some commentators say, that you take your hands and you put them underwater, you make a fist out of one and you rub really hard and you do the same thing in the other one? Or is it that you take your hands and you put them underwater and then you have fists and you raise it up so the water either drips off your wrist or drips off your elbow? And there's debates on which it is because of the way it's written in rabbinic traditions. It's also suggested that fist washing is you... You put your hands in the water and you make a fist as you're washing them. It doesn't matter. That's why it's a, it's good to have it translated as carefully wash. Now you carefully wash your hands. They went. It wasn't just dip them in and you're done. There was a serious exercise that you went through to diligently wash your hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. The rabbinic traditions that had accumulated over the last four centuries uh, between the days of Ezra and the time of Christ's arrival. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Not talked a little bit about this in the introduction, Uh, The the interesting thing here at the end of verse 4, washing cups and pitchers and copper pots, the Mishnah, which is a collection of these kinds of rabbinic traditions, the Mishnah includes 30 chapters on the rules and regulations and stipulations related to how to properly wash your cups, how to properly wash pitchers, and how to properly wash your, wash your uh, pots, including, depending upon what metal or, or uh, material they might be made of. Okay, you think, you think cleaning up at home is a chore. Now, ladies, imagine if there were specific stipulations on how you have to go through and clean this pot, that pot, or the other pot. 30 chapters just on that. Now, before you before you laugh and mock, keep in mind that a lot of this okay, it's okay to laugh, but before you mock, keep in mind that a lot of the motivation behind this really was originally and to an extent I think consistently driven by a genuine zeal for God and a desire to be as deliberate as possible in obeying God. And most of the people did it because the people that were standing up here teaching them this is what God expects were telling them exactly this is what God expects. Also keep in mind, everybody didn't have their own copy of the Bible. Everybody didn't have their own copy of the Bible to bring into church, to bring into the synagogue, to to, to bring and sit down at home and read for themselves. That's why there was such an emphasis on memorization. That's why you started the synagogue service by reading from the text. That's why they had a, a, a specific set of um, a, a, a policy on how to read through the Torah consistently. So you're, you're going through and, and, and making sure that everybody has heard from the Torah at least once a year in the readings why because you can't sit down and read it at home we have a lot of privileges that people in those days did not have with regard to access to the law of God I dare say there's a real conviction element that ought to kick in perhaps for some of us how much time do you actually spend uh, reading your copy of God's word even uh, any one of them and you imagine if, if you went to synagogue because that's the only time you actually got to hear it? You say, well, okay, where did the idea of washing your hands come from? I get uh, the Sabbath stipulations and stuff like that, but where do these ideas of washings come from? Well, if you take your Bibles very quickly and turn back to Leviticus. I don't want to belabor this point. I do want to prove it, though. If you go to Leviticus 15, notice there are a set of stipulations that involve multiple washings and rules for washings and cleansing yourself and things when somebody has a discharge, when somebody is sick and there's some discharge involved. Now, we're gonna not getting into medical details there, but I think you can imagine what kind of discharges we're talking about. And these are rules that God gave through Moses... Uh, to the people of Israel. Leviticus 15 verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when anyone has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Moreover, this shall be his uncleanness in his discharge. It is his uncleanness, whether his body allows its discharge to flow or whether his body obstructs the discharge, every bed on which that person with the discharge lies becomes unclean, everything on which he sits becomes unclean. Anyone moreover who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever sits on a thing on which a man with a discharge has been sitting shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Also whoever touches the person with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. Or if the man with the discharge spits on the one who is unclean, he too shall wash his clothes and bathe, etc. You go all the way down through verse 13. Even when he gets better, he washes himself and his clothes in order to clean. Notice this all has to do with a specific situation. You've got somebody that has a discharge, though. This isn't every day, everybody. You follow me? And we could go through all those other details, but I think you get the point. Leviticus 16, look at verse 23. Now we're looking at the uh, preparations for the Day of Atonement, the one day a year where there's the formal sacrifice for sins. Leviticus sixteen twenty three. Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, he shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place, put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar and the one who releases the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water then afterward he shall come into the camp etc uh, notice in verse 28 the one who burns them the ashes uh, of the sacrifices and the offerings the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water and then afterward he comes back into the camp and this is a permanent statute for you verse 29 etc but notice this repetitive washing and this commitment to make sure you're really clean it's all tied to the Day of Atonement, formal exercise of approaching God and offering a sacrifice for sin to God. Jump ahead to Leviticus 22. Leviticus 22. Pick up in verse 1. Uh, These are many and varied rules for priests, specifically tied to them eating their portion of the sacrifices. So now we get closer to what we're talking about that became a regular practice for everybody in Israel. Tell Aaron, Leviticus 22, 1, and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as not to profane my holy name, I am the Lord. Now, these holy gifts have to do with the grain offerings and the, 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 the meat offerings, the animal sacrifices, etc., that the priests got a portion of. Remember, they lived off of the offerings of the people of God to God. They got a portion of it to sustain them. Say to them, if any man among all of your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy gifts which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am the Lord. No man of the descendants of Abraham who is a leper who has a discharge, may eat of the holy gifts until he is clean. And if one touches anything made unclean by a corpse, or if any man has a seminal emission, or if any man touches any teeming things by which he is made unclean, or any man by whom he is made unclean, whatever is uncleanness, a person who touches any such shall be unclean till evening. He shall not eat of the holy li- gifts unless he has, what? bathed his body in water, etc., Uh, He shall not eat an animal, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But all of these prescriptions, all the way down to verse 10, all of them have to do with eating what is the allotment from the sacrifices by the priesthood. It's because what they're eating is holy, because it was offered up to God. They say, okay, great. Now, where's the specific instructions related to all people and all their meals? You know where it is? In the rabbinic traditions. You know why it's there? Listen, if this is the way the priests ought to be, we all ought to be being holy like this. So this should be all of us, all the time, every day. And that's that's how traditions trump truth. It starts as what is believed to be a good idea. Well, why don't we all behave that way, like the priests? And then the next thing you know, that becomes the set of rules and standards. So when you go all the way back to Mark chapter 7, now you've got a basis from which to evaluate what's going on. When the, when the Pharisees and scribes get, uh, go to investigate, uh, formally investigate Jesus, they show up and they see that some of his disciples are eating without having first gone and washed their hands, which is what every good Jew commonly does. Now, why does it matter for the disciples? Because if Jesus really is a righteous teacher, see, it's, it, notice they're not evaluating his behavior. They're evaluating his disciples' behavior because It's one thing for them to violate the traditions of the elders, but for him not to say something about it suggests that he doesn't adhere to the traditions of the elders, and that makes it very, very uh, much offensive to the Pharisees and scribes because you're taking all of our rabbinic traditions, all the traditions of the elders which we hold so dear and see as a codified expression of how to live a life that honors God, and you're, you're not making your disciples follow it. You're undermining our authority and what we believe and what we practice. So. We come to verse five, the Pharisees and the scribes then asked him, why do your disciples not walk? Or you could even say live in a context like that, because that's what that what walking means, means the manner of uh, the way you live your life. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat their bread with impure or unwashed hands? Why is that? And I want you to notice that Jesus's answer is not really an answer. I want you to notice it is a direct condemnation, a direct refutation and admonishment. He says to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites rightly did Isaiah prophesy and by the extension when you look at the content of what he's quoting from Isaiah here, condemn. And a a side note here, the word hypocrites, I know I've said this many times, I just want to make sure we're clear because when I grew up in church, I learned the word hypocrites means that you're the kind of a person that says one thing and does another. Okay, technically the word hypocrite is not does not mean that that's a lot of times what we mean by the use of that term in English but the Greek word here which is rightly translated hypocrite means someone who is playing a part it refers to an actor uh, someone who, who does a performance in a play it's it's pretending to be somebody or something you're not it's putting on the mask and pretending to be something as opposed to saying one thing and doing another. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, and this is, a, uh, this is a reference to Isaiah 29, verse 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And there's this quote from Isaiah. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 29, you can see the original context in which Isaiah writes this as a, is as a condemnation and a, and a rebuke to the nation of Israel, specifically to Jerusalem, for doing exactly the same thing. They were honoring God with their lips. They were singing praises and psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms and expressing worship to the God of Israel. But they were not living in accordance with His commands. They were giving themselves also to the worship of idols and to offering up sacrifices on the high places to other gods and engaged in the rituals of their pagan neighbors. In vain do they worship Me. For no purpose do they go through the exercise of formally worshiping Me. Why? Because I don't accept any of it. Because you're not doing it from the heart. Your heart is far from me. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Teaching as things, uh, uh, as, as doctrines. Something you need to believe and adhere to. When in fact, all it is, is man-made prescription. That's not divine commands. And now here's where he takes that text... And that context from Isaiah 29 and applies it directly to the Pharisees and the scribes that he's talking to in verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. You are upset. You are asking me. Why I do not tell my disciples to adhere to the the traditions of the elders, to the traditions of men that you adhere to and teach other people to adhere to. I'll tell you why. Because your heart is far from God. And you are offending God by teaching those traditions as stipulations that He expects people to adhere to. Notice, the kid gloves are off. This is a knockout punch. This is a straight-up refutation. He goes on in verse 9. He was also saying to them. So this is a record of the further elaboration and admonishment he gave them. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Wow. Now that one's a zinger. Okay. That... (laughs) That one, I got to assume that, that that included a chuck smirk behind it. Wham! You guys are experts. You are masters. Okay? You are epic in your ability to set aside what God has actually commanded in order to make sure that your traditions are adhered to, having come up with your own standards. Notice his explanation or justification of this rebuke. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. That first honor your father and mother comes from where? Ten Commandments. First place is listed is Exodus 20. He who speaks evil or curses uh, his father or mother is to be put to death. Where does that come from? The very next chapter, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. The next chapter, Exodus 21, says if you speak evil of your father or mother, you're to be put to death. Death sentence for speaking evil of your father or mother. God takes it very seriously how you treat, honor, and take care of your parents. Agreed? That's what the Scripture says. But I say to you, if a man says to his father or mother, this is verse 11, whatever I have that would help you is korban. That's a technical term. It's used in the traditions of the elders, the rabbinic teachings, to refer to your possessions that you have declared to be korban. That is, dedicated or designated to be gifted to God. I have... I have marked that money out, Mom, I'd love to help you. Uh, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to go ahead and, and help you get a place to live. I'd love to go ahead and build a room on the house and move you in. I'd love to go ahead and, and pay your rent or, or put some food on your table, whatever. But the problem is, Mom, I've already declared the whole of my state to be Corbin, to be dedicated to God, so I can't do it. You say, oh, I guess all of you are going to be living on the street. Well, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. What Corbin means is that when I die, it all has to go to God. So I, I can't, I, I can't give it to you. I just have to use it for my own household. You say, well, that seems really exactly, exactly. And that's the rabbinic tradition that Jesus goes after here. You say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you as Corban, that is to say, already given to God or dedicated to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. And thereby, what are you doing? You're in fact invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And I love that last phrase at the end of verse 13. And you do many things such as that. I I could give you a whole list of those kinds of offensive things that you do. This is just the easiest one to hit. There's, a, there's just a, an, a, a, a natural way that legalism turns into absolute corruption. That's what they were doing. And that's what Jesus rebukes. That's what he refutes. Notice how he cares not about whether the Pharisees or the scribes will approve him or recognize him, etc. He is committed to truth, not tradition. He is committed to honoring his Father, not pleasing men. And you know what? If you want to be a true worshiper of God, that's who you've got to be, and that's what you've got to be like as well. And you've got to make sure that you don't let your your interpretation of the application of the biblical principles and commands in Scripture, you got to make sure that you... Listen, we all need to adhere clearly to what the Bible says. But as far as the specific applications go, a lot of times there is liberty to decide uh, as far as the interpretation of it. You don't need to make sure that you don't start coming up with, well, for us, that means this. I still remember in Bible college. Now... uh, I was I was still a pretty new Christian, only been saved for a couple of years, three years, whatever it was when I went to Bible college. And my wife, her high school was a was a Baptist, a Baptist high school. Okay, now I don't have any problem with Baptists. OK. And it had a whole list of do's and don'ts. Okay, now my wife was not saved at the time, so that mm, don't tell her I said this, but that might have factored into her negative reaction to some of this stuff. But when I got saved and I wanted to go, I wanted to learn the Bible, uh, the only school I really had access to, I couldn't go to Cedarville because I had a full-time job during the day and they only had day classes. So I went to a little Baptist Bible college in Cincinnati for my undergraduate, a Bible degree, and uh, they had this code of conduct that was expected that you had to sign off on. And, and it was a don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. It, it, and it listed uh, our movies and or whatever. I can't remember all the. Li- and, and so I read through the list and I went, OK, well, I don't do any of that stuff. Fine. Signed it. Uh, I haven't had a drink basically since I uh, since shortly after I got saved because of the way I used to be. No problem. I can sign that. My wife, oh, she I mean, it took an hour for her to get back from her orbit around the moon. She said, you can't sign that. That's legalism. I said, dear, I'm already living according to that standard. Yes, but it's not because it's that standard. Well, I understand that. Well, do they? Well, I don't know, dear. I just want to learn the Bible. Can I please go to college? And so, uh, but then in time, I started to realize that for some people, they were like me, and they didn't have any problem signing that code of conduct because they would never think about if it. it wasn't the code of conduct. You're just asking me, do I do anything like this? No. Uh, but for others, you get there and you start realizing others are defining their sanctification by that. You know, there's lots of movies that aren't rated R that I won't watch. There are lots of movies that, and in fact, this is one of the things being 30 when you're sa- getting saved at the age of 30. There's a lot of movies I grew up with as a teenager and in my young adulthood, and I'm like, I remember that it was a good movie. And then you rent it and you pop it on. It's like five minutes, 10 minutes in, Kath and I are looking like, okay, we can't watch this. I don't remember any. Do you remember any of this garbage in there? No. Well, let's, let's, let's watch another rerun, okay? Well, but it's, see, there's a lot of things that, that passes the rating that do- don't pass my conscience. Does that make sense? My conscience informed by Scripture needs to be the standard by which I live, not somebody's codified external set of standards. Now, this is such a serious issue that I want you to notice that in verses 14 to 23, as we wrap up our study this morning, I want you to notice that Jesus does not let it go, having just admonished and rebuked the Pharisees. At this point, he's going to move beyond that, and he is going to inform the crowds of the religious hypocrisy and then teach his disciples privately about religious hypocrisy. Verse 14. Here's where Jesus, having finished with that private meeting, verse 14, after he called the crowd to himself again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all you, and understand there is nothing outside of the person which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man. Those are the things that defile man. That's what defiles you. It's not whether you eat with dirty hands or not. It's not about washing your hand. It's not about externals. It's not what you take from the outside and put in. It's what comes out of you. That's what, that's what offends God. You notice in verse 16, uh, the reason it's in square brackets in the New American Standard and some of your Bibles is because it's not actually part of Mark's Gospel. This is added into later manuscripts, which is why it's in the King James and the New King James. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That does occur in a lot of places in the Bible, Making ev- and Jesus said it uh, periodically to double emphasize what he was saying. If anybody has ears to hear, let him hear. If you hear me and understand what I'm saying, pay attention to this because it's really important. But the text just says, listen to me, all of you, and understand. You can see Jesus is already emphatically affirming. You pay attention to this as he's telling the multitudes. There's nothing outside of a person which can defile him if it goes into him. You will not ever be defiled by having dirt on your hands and eating. You know what defiles you in the sight of God? You know what offends God? What comes out of you? Remember what Jesus says? It's out of the overflow of the heart that the what? Mouth speaks. You have a problem with what's coming up? Do you have hateful speech, filthy speech, mean speech, arrogant speech coming out of your mouth, bitter speech coming out? You know what? You don't have a mouth problem. You know what you have? You have a heart problem. You have a heart problem. What you're allowing yourself to think, the attitude you're allowing yourself to have, the motivations and inclinations that you're allowing yourself to dwell on. Your problem, and the same way with behavior, it's the same thing with the things that you do. You don't, you don't actually have a hand problem. If you're going places you shouldn't be, if you're doing things you shouldn't do, you don't have a problem with your hands and your feet. If you're looking at things you shouldn't be looking at, you don't have a problem with, with your eyes. You know what you have a problem with? Your heart. The heart is desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9, right? 8, 9. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is desperately wicked. What's coming, all that's happening is what's coming out of you is what's coming out of a corrupt heart. And that is what offends God. That's what defiles you. And this is what he says to the multitudes. Notice in verse 17. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about this parable. And you don't need to turn there. Let me uh, let me just uh, direct your attention to what we're told in the parallel in Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, we're told that that when Jesus met with the Pharisees and then came out of that meeting and addressed the crowd Afterwards, the disciples come to Jesus privately and say, Do you know the Pharisees were offended uh, when they heard that statement? Do you know the Pharisees were bent out of shape by what you said to them? They were mad. By the way, the word offended is the word uh, for scandalize. Oh you, oh, oh, you got their panties in a twist, Lord. They are madder than hornets. You really, you really set them off, Lord. You know, what's really uh, amazing is before we get into the text that's in Mark 7 here, Jesus actually responds to that. He answers his disciples and says, Every plant which my heavenly father did not plant is going to be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both are going to fall into a pit. You You know what he said there in Matthew 15? When the disciples were all concerned, you really set the Pharisees and the scribes off. They are madder than spit. So they are blind guides, and they are leading blind people, and they're all headed for destruction. It's it's not up to me to go set them straight. I admonished them, and now it's all on them. There's nothing else. By the way, there's a practical implication for us. You know what that means? We don't have to set other people straight. It's not up to us to point out other people who are, hypocr- who are being hypocrites, play acting or coming up with their own legalistics. It's not up for us to champion the cause of stamping out legalism. You know something? Every legalist will answer to God. And that's hear me. That's way more serious and severe treatment than anything we could ever do. But they're leading people astray. They're leading people astray. They want to follow them. You warn, you admonish, and then you let him go. We're told then in verse 15 that Peter then said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? That brings us back to Mark 7. And verse 17, when they had left or when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. Notice they called a parable. And Jesus says to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? By the way, now this is a, this is a sanctified translation. You know what the Greek literally said? You want to know what Jesus literally said? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside can't defile him because it doesn't go into his heart. It goes into his stomach and into the latrine. That's what he literally said. We would say it goes into the toilet and it's gone. It's just flushed and out of here. That's what Jesus said. This is not a parable, guys. I didn't tell you an earthly story with a heavenly meaning that I have to explain to you. That you have to be a part of a a member of the kingdom to be able to understand. I didn't tell you a parable. I'm telling you straight up the truth. Do you not understand? Whatever goes into the person doesn't defile the person. Because it's not going into your heart. You're you're not going to be evaluated by what you eat. You're going to be evaluated by your heart attitude. What you think, what you reason, what you want, what you believe. And then ultimately, what you say and do is a result. It doesn't go into the heart. It goes into the stomach and is eliminated. Notice the last little phrase there in verse 19. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Now, notice this is in parentheses. Okay? This is in parentheses. This is Mark's little addition. Jesus did not set aside the Mosaic law with this statement. Okay? Jesus set the precedent ultimately for setting it aside. In the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus said was, "I did not come to abolish the law but to what? To fulfill it." When were the dietary laws and the specific Mosaic instructions tied to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the sacrificial system, the dietary laws and all when did all that stuff get set aside? when the once-for-all sacrifice for sins was made, and when the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, and the way was open for all of us to have access to God. That's when the dietary laws were set aside. That's when the Sabbath regulation was set aside, which is a sign of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. All of that stuff got set aside when the fullness came in. Why, why would Mark include this here? I'll tell you why. Because Mark is based on Peter's preaching. And of all the apostles, who was the, who was the one that we know from Scripture had the biggest problem learning this lesson? Peter. This is based on his preaching. Peter's pre- Mark is writing his gospel on the basis of Peter's preaching right before Peter went and was executed uh, for his faith in Christ. By the end, did Peter learn the lesson? Oh, yeah. I think that's what's reflected here. In any case, as we move forward to verse 20, notice he says, and he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. It's not what you put in, it's what comes out. What kinds of things come out that defile us? What are the kinds of things that we need to be worrying about that make us unclean in the sight of God, offensive to God? Well, he gives you a a list here. For from within, out of the heart of men or of people, proceed what? Evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. There's your list. Those things in your heart, those are what defile you. Those things in your heart, and especially when they come out and they manifest themselves in the way you behave, the attitude that you show, the things that you say, the things that you do, those are the things that defile you. Those are the things that make you an offense to God. It's all what comes out of your heart. We start through the list here, evil thoughts, dialogismas. It's not just thinking, it's the reasoning. It's not just thinking the thought. It's the reasoning behind that thought. Tell me something. You ever have a thought and play with it? Ever have a thought that you know is wrong? Whether Let, let, let me ask you a question. This probably only happens in my house, but have you ever had heated fellowship in your marriage? That's, that's what my pastor used to call a fight. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so then you, you, and Donald, you and I, we're on the same page now, right? Okay, so for the rest of you, you get to, thanks for coming in for my and Donald's counseling session, all right? Because in my house, there are times when I'm thinking things about my wife. I cannot believe she just asked me. How can she think that? She, you ever play, you ever have that thought, kind of thinking going on in your heart? Now, you know you would never say it. Probably. <laughs> Unless you're really, you know what I'm talking about? You follow me? okay. Those are evil thoughts. It's that evil reasoning. You let yourself think stuff and you know that it's not right. Now, you may not be able to get control of your mind right away. That's because you live in a sin-cursed, fallen world and a fallen body with a fallen mind and fallen memories, etc. Okay? But that's what defiles you. Thinking like that. Evil thoughts. Fornications. This is this the broadest term. It's, uh, we get the word pornography or porn from this. It's pornea. It's the broadest term for sexual sin, for immorality of any kind. Thefts. Guess what thefts means? Klepte, uh, klepe. Uh, it means, uh, uh, it, it, we get our word kleptomaniac from that. You know what it literally means? To steal something. To take something that isn't yours. You ever saw something that somebody else and just take it or think about taking it and then plan plan through in your mind, could I get away with it? And if you realize, oh, I won't get away with it, so I'll just leave it. Okay, just the thought. You don't even have to actually do the action to defile yourself in the sight of God. These are the kinds of evil thoughts. These are the kinds of sinful thoughts that defile you in the sight of God. You ever justify it? How many of you at home have a tablet that, that is actually a work tablet? Ah, now, when I say tablet, immediately you think iPad. Oh, I didn't steal the laptop, right? I'm talking about a tablet of paper, uh, a thing of sticky notes. Well, it's okay. I do some work at home, so I just pocket it, bring it home. You justify it, right? As opposed to buying. You know, it's, you just stole. And you justified it in your own thing. See, all that reasoning, all that thinking... These are the kinds of things that Jesus says. This, you really want an educated conscience? You really want to think about what defiles you in the sight of God? This is not a, a, adhering to or not adhering to some external standard that you came up with. It's looking at your heart and comparing it to the expectations that God has expressed in Scripture and seeing whether you measure up. And you are going to find? You don't. You don't. This is why Jesus came. You want want to know why Jesus is so passionate about this, so direct about this? He didn't come to die because we just needed a little help. He came to die because we are rotten to the core. Evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders. I direct your attention to Matthew five to really start to understand the sin of murder. I think most people hear that word murder and they go, I've never done that. Well, according to Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, if you fired off a hateful word against somebody, you committed murder where in your heart? And if you say to someone you good for nothing, if you have that bitter thought, that bitter attitude, that resentful attitude, that hateful attitude towards somebody, you're already in your heart committing the sin of murder. You may not be worthy of capital punishment in a physical sense, but you're worthy of eternal punishment in a spiritual sense because God is evaluating not just your external behavior. God is evaluating the what? The heart. When God chose David to be king instead of Saul, you know why? Because he was looking for a man who was a man after God's own what? Heart. Adulteries. The only difference between fornication and adultery is whether you're violating a marriage covenant in the act or not. Deeds of coveting. Oh, this is a good one. This is, so I've just been preaching all this time. No meddling. But the meddling starts now. You ready? Deeds of coveting. Now, it means coveting, but I don't think that we really think through what coveting actually means, especially in our society today. It would probably be better to think of this. I mean, some of the old, uh, the King James type terminology fits a little better here. Greediness, avarice, stuff like that. But if you really want to know what the word means, what coveting actually means, it is a strong, consuming desire for more. It's when you want more than what you have. Our entire society, our entire advertising, entertainment, and marketing industry is founded on generating covetous attitudes in all of us. You want to know why most billboards and most commercials and most ads Have pretty girls on it because you immediately have the attention of most guys. You want to know why uh, uh, there's new car commercials that show popular, powerful, rich people with a with a perfect life driving this cool car that does everything that you wish your car did? Because it creates in you dissatisfaction with your car and a desire to buy a different car or another car. Let me ask you a question. How many guitars do you have to have before you have enough? You know what the answer is? One more than I have today. One more than I have today. I I got a new guitar over the summer, and I had a blast playing it. I bought it because my son-in-law has one just like it. It was a fun little exercise, a fun little ordeal, and uh, the whole bit. I get it. And I still remember to this day, I remember it's on its way and because (laughs) I ordered it on the internet, guess what shows up on a Golden State Warriors uh, page? Five other guitars that I don't own that are a little bit more expensive or a whole lot more expensive and better than it. And I followed one of those and went, oh, that is pretty nice. And then I thought, what an idiot. You have two hands. It takes both of them to play one not very well. What are you going to do with another one that you can't play very well? I think I'm. I think I'm good. But I had to work through that. Now, how many? Let me ask you a question. Ready for the meddling? How many purses is too many? Isn't or enough? How many pairs of shoes? How many outfits? How many knickknacks? Patty wax and give a dog a bone, okay? How many is enough? You know what the answer is? At least one more than I have. Why? Because that's what's defiant. We have a covetous attitude. That's all that's going on. You, you, you know, you need to not give attention and not be worrying about legalistic standards and don't drink, don't smoke, don't go with gr- and don't chew and don't go with girls who do. And that kind of you, you need to start looking at the attitudes of your heart. You want to know what is defiling you in the sight of God? It's not external conformity to some set of standards. It's the heart attitudes that are offensive to God. The next word is wickedness. It speaks of things as simple uh, as simply wicked, base, malicious, and evil. Deceit, Dolos is a word to describe somebody who takes advantage of other people by means of cunning and tre- tre- uh, treachery. Oh, 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 I, 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 I will tell you that this is what you ought to do, but I'm not going to tell you everything because I want the best piece. Right? Or whatever. See, th- th- these kinds of attitudes, sensuality, is a word that basically speaks of a lack of self-restraint behaving in a way that's beyond the bounds of what's socially or morally acceptable, uh, basically abandoning yourself to just do whatever you want, not worrying about the consequences for right now. What happens afterwards? What happens two seconds later, two hours later, the next day, all of a sudden you get hit with this wave of guilt and you feel separated from God? You want to know why? Because Because it's not just your behavior, it was you did not win the battle in your heart, and your heart is what is offending God. Envy. The Greek literally has the evil eye. This isn't this is not some witch's tale. Oh, I'll give you the evil eye. Cast a spell. No, the evil eye is looking at somebody with disdain. Looking at somebody with envy, with hatred. That what they have you want and you're jealous, or who they are you hate. Slander is actually the word for blasphemy, it means just to speak evil of somebody else. Pride, I think we all understand this. We think that we're more important than anybody else, or everybody else, or even one other person. You want to know the only person that's really important in the whole of creation? It's God. You want to know what's amazing (laughs) is that he considers us important to himself. You want to read you want to read something that will really cause you to step back and go, wow, read Psalm eight this afternoon when David says, when I look at all of creation and consider the works of your hands, you know what I wonder? What am I that you give a thought to me? Now that that's humility. And we are all. Typically, the opposite of that. And foolishness. Foolishness is the last one. It just means you lack a good sense of judgment. There are lots of foolish things that we do. Because we just don't care what God thinks. Verse 23, Jesus closes off this way. All these things proceed from within, and they are the things that defile a man. They are the things that defile a person. You know what you need to be concerned about? Not the traditions of men. Not the legalistic standards that that people have come up with or that you yourself have come up with for yourself. You need to be continually looking at the attitudes of your heart and repenting of the evil attitudes. Don't just repent when you do it. Repent when you think it. Having gone through all this list, let me just ask you, how'd you do? What's your standard? Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, the answer is verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind even to give to each person according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. You want to know why you need to be absolutely, totally concerned, not about external behavior, but the internal attitudes and thoughts and intentions of your heart, because that's what God is going to evaluate you on the basis of. And none of us will pass through that level of expectation and that kind of a standard that God has for us. And that is why Jesus came. Jesus came to offer himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, not because we needed a little help, but because our hearts are desperately wicked and we are far from God. And without him, we would rightly be headed to the lake of fire that we all deserve. Yeah, there's a lot of people with legalistic standards out there. There's a lot of people who profess to be Christians that are basically living according to a legalistic set of rules. You need to not worry about any of that. You know what you need to worry about? your own heart, and your own heart attitude, even with regard to our evaluation of each other. We need to not be evaluating each other based upon our external conformity. We need to evaluate ourselves according to the law of God and our own heart attitudes and live a life to the best of our ability as an expression of worship to God and thanks to Him for what He's done for us in Christ. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for today and for the many ways you bless us. Thank you for the clarity of your teaching and thank you for the conviction that it brings to our hearts to consider a standard that it is impossible for us, even with a new heart, to measure up to. Forgive us of our many sins. Forgive us of our hateful attitudes, our evil thoughts and intentions, inclinations and even desires, and the behavior that so often springs from us. But help us to be not those people who are focused just on controlling the behavior so that we don't do things we shouldn't do. Help us instead to recognize the real issue is a matter of the heart. Help us to recognize that what we need to control is our thinking and what we need to get a hold of and continually repent of is sinful thinking, sinful desires, sinful thoughts so that we honor you with our attitudes and the words that come from our mouth, our praises of thanks and expressions of adoration because you really are a great God and you deserve our worship. And we ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen.